and the punishment was too severe? What's wrong with you people? Evangelical churches today are increasingly dominated by the spirit of this age rather than by the spirit of Christ. But yet, tragically, the popular evangelical authors and conference speakers today who are teaching that justification is by faith alone, but entering heaven is not by faith alone, there are other conditions to be met. A what? Back to the Reformation. It has been more than 500 years since the Reformation. The 21st century church has departed from the authority of scripture and the gospel. We welcome you to listen in as we go back to the Reformation. The views of this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the churches the host attend. Welcome to the Back to the Reformation podcast. My name is Matt Rosenblum, and I'm here with my co-host, Onyxiadian. And we are here to sound the clarion call to tell the Bonner Church to get back to its roots in the Reformation, to recover the gospel, and to submit to the authority of Scripture. And in our third episode... We will be talking about the topic of law and gospel, and we have a special guest with us. And our special guest is Pastor Edward Killian of Mount Calvary Lutheran Church of Beverly Hills. Thank you for being with us, Ed. Thank you, gentlemen. It's my distinct pleasure to be here. Ed, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, I am a pastor of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Uh, my congregation is in Beverly Hills, California. It sounds a lot more glamorous than it actually is, but uh, uh, I've been there for about three years, and I was in Iowa for 11 years before that. So, And what's your educational background? I got bachelor's at uh, Concordia Irvine uh, and Concordia University Irvine, studied under Dr. Rod Rosenblatt, mm. and then I went to Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. What a blessing to study under Dad Rod, huh? Yes, it, uh, it was a, definitely a life-changing experience, to be sure, in all the best ways. Okay. So the question is, what is law and what is gospel? So what is law in the scripture? Uh, we rightly understand that as all of the things that God uh, commands us to do and not to do, uh, from, from again, from the beginning of Genesis with Don't Eat the Fruit, uh, to the Ten Commandments, to sort of all of the things that are amplified out from that. Okay, and is there such thing as a written law? Indeed, indeed. When we talk about the uh, all of the uh, inerrant and inspired scriptures that have been uh, handed down, uh, written by uh, the prophets and the evangelists, etc. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so we can see the law written in the Ten Commandments, correct? Absolutely, yes. Uh, we see there um, God's will, uh, not only for uh, our relationship with him, but also uh, the relationship with uh, our fellow man, all that he commands us uh, to believe and to do. Yeah, so a lot of people don't really understand that the Ten Commandments is a reflection of God's character. It's a reflection of who he is. Absolutely, and it uh, of the standard that he demands. And uh, the law tells us about us, too. Uh, it tells us about uh, how we are to be and how we aren't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and most of the time we aren't. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Regrettably, right. Uh, that is the reality of our existence here. Yeah. Romans chapter three says, "None are righteous. No, not one. No one seeks after God. All have gone their own way." Yes, and it and it uh, repeats that point uh, uh, very often to make sure that we grasp that it has kicked the slats out of any hope we have of justifying ourselves. So. Mm -hmm. Now, yeah. what if someone doesn't have the scripture? 
Um, how do they know that there is a law of God? Well, we do talk about we do talk about that how the law is written on our hearts. Um, C.S. Lewis makes a point of talking about how um, all civilizations on Earth have these general things that you shouldn't kill other people and you shouldn't take what's not yours and you shouldn't take your neighbor's wife. And we do understand that the the law from Scripture, the law is written on our hearts, uh, but that the gospel has something that has to be revealed to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the application of the law then, um, there's what's called the three uses of the law. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you want to expound on that? Uh, usually, usually that's put forth as a, a, a curb, a mirror, and an instruction. Uh, the curb, of course, to stop bad behavior. Uh, we know that where there is no law, people eat each other. You know, we've, we've seen that. Uh, some recent examples, uh, you know, when we saw the Taliban fall, we saw just absolute rampant lawlessness. Likewise, when the Soviet Union fell and there was no, uh, no rule of law in place. Uh, also, uh, Katrina, for example, Hurricane Katrina, we saw that when the police force and the, uh, you know, the government was overwhelmed, that people mm-hmm. did absolutely atrocious things. So first to curb bad behavior. Second, and, and uh, we could argue perhaps the most important is, is the mirror to show us our sin. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, we remember uh, the story of, of King David. And uh, he took Bathsheba, a woman who was not his wife, and eventually ended up killing her husband to cover up the fact that he had impregnated her. And uh, Nathan the prophet, of course, comes and... Uh, tells him a story about a man who had lots of sheep, but uh, he took the the man's wife, who or the man's sheep who only had one. Uh-huh. And when David said that man should be put to death, Nathan said, "You are that man." And uh, this is the function of the law to show us who we are in light of it, to show us God's standard, and to show us the fact that we we don't meet it, and that we are in need of a savior. And also the third use of the law. Yes, there's always much controversy about this uh-huh. in many Christian circles, but uh, we certainly uphold that to be true. Uh, now that we are saved, now that Christ has uh, taken away our debt, now that we are free to live, the question is then how then do we live? And uh, as St. Paul asks, do we abolish the law? By no means we establish it. And we we believe that we are still called to live by that which God has commanded us to live by. Okay, well, let's say someone brings up the objection, why have the third use of the law when we have the Holy Spirit? Uh, This idea that the Holy Spirit uh, floats around and sort of leads us apart from Scripture is a a bit of a dangerous thing. We need to be, uh, uh, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, and we know what God's will is when we uh, are are closely acquainted with what he clearly says is revealed to us in Scripture. So, so the Spirit always works according to the Word, yes. or through the Word. Yes. Yeah, we, we, we are very nervous about God spoke to me talk apart from the Word of God. It's uh, God may lead you in a direction, but it has to be in accord with what his clear testimony in Scripture. So either it's the Word or indigestion. Yeah, <laughs> that's a wonderful way to put it, yeah. <laughs> you may be hearing something, but it, it likely is not, right. is not God's voice. Right, so, right, right. Yeah, absolutely. So with the th- uh, third use of the law, then, uh, then the law does apply to Christians, obviously certainly yeah yeah and so 
in that respect, then how does um, then we we definitely need to have a distinction between the law and the gospel, since the law itself is not the gospel, and the gospel is not the law. Absolutely, yes. And commingling those things is is certainly a a dangerous proposition because we run the risk of losing our Savior. And I, I want to be you know abundantly clear about that when we're looking for a scriptural. Um, basis for this law and gospel, because sometimes there there is an accusation that we've read that into scripture, you know. But when we take a careful look at Romans chapter three, and uh, we'll go specifically verse nine and following, you know, what the law says, it says to all who are under the law, so that all mouths may be shut and everyone held accountable to God. Those are words we can't meditate on enough because they uh, clearly point to the fact that. None of us have a claim by works of the law. And, and, and a little further down, that very same text, by works of the law, no man is justified. And right. so the law has, has killed us. It has left us judged and without a claim before God. But then <laughs> the next verse is some of the most beautiful words we'll ever hear. But now a new righteousness comes apart from the law. And this is where the gospel picks up in its full sweetness. Hmm. Uh, we were judged, damned, and helpless by our own works. But fortunately, our salvation doesn't come from our good works. It comes from the death and resurrection of Jesus. So, in regard to the, the nature of the law, the, the nature of the law, it demands perfect obedience. It does. It does. Uh, we, we notice that our Lord... Uh, never speaks in gray area. It's always light, darkness, life, death. You either gather with me or you scatter. You are either for me or you are against me. And, and, and the law puts exactly that kind of demand upon us. You either do it or you die. You know, uh, again, um, you know, the wages of sin is death and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And, and so but Paul, Paul does say that the law is um of course it's not evil um it, it's, no. it's a good thing because what it does it does reveal sin in us yes um as the uh, second you talked about the second use as a mirror so if the law is good then um so some theologians say that uh, yes you actually can be saved by obedience to the law but yet just like paul said in romans 3 no one's righteous not one no one's yes. No one has uh, obeyed from the heart, from the beginning, in, in any capacity. Uh, so, you using the law for uh, salvation, for uh, reconciling with God, is impossible because, by nature, right where Ephesians one where um, at enmity, right, we're enemies of God. Yes. So. Then now the gospel comes in. God provides a way for that reconciliation. Yeah, and let's give a very clear uh, let's give a very clear uh, um, definition of the gospel. Uh, the gospel, rightly spoken of, is Christ and Him crucified for the forgiveness of sins. This is God's work towards dead man, and. I believe that this is uh, again so often in 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 modern Christianity when you hear he's a good gospel preacher what they mean is he's a thunderous law preacher 
you know, or the gospel is living right. It's my walk with Jesus. In fact, it's none of those things. The gospel, rightly spoken of, is Christ's redemptive work to people with dead souls. It's the gospel, rightly spoken of, is rescue. And so rescue does not involve us. The gospel is completely the work of God. Yes. So the fire and brimstone preacher um, is, like you said, is preaching the law so that we can accomplish something in response to that. Yes. So, so the gospel is the opposite. It's telling you what God has accomplished for you. And it, it, it encompasses all of Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. And and here's the thing, um, you know, uh, we have God's clear testimony that that you know Saint Paul writes, "He who seeks to justify himself by works of the law cuts himself off from Christ." And I think that's again one of those passages that we we can't meditate on enough. He who seeks to justify himself by his own works cuts himself off from Jesus. Now let's say. Someone brings up the objection um, about the act of obedience of Christ. Yes. That Christ didn't have to merit salvation for us, that it, there was enough in the cross itself and the passive obedience of Christ. What's wrong with that? Or is there anything wrong with that? Yeah. With regards, with regards to it is the, the finished work of Jesus, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we... We proclaim this, that, that his blood shed is enough. Uh, we look to his own words on the cross uh, when uh, he is about to commend his spirit to his father. He says, it is finished. And it's very important that we understand what that means. Uh, he's referring to our salvation. This is the hour for which he has come, the thing that he's always been pointing to. Uh, the thing, you know, all of the Old Testament in ways subtle and bold point to both the need for and the promise of a Savior. And Jesus, from the time he is speaking, talks about being his, about his father's business and, and the work that he's come to do, the hour that he's waiting for. And this hour is the hour on the cross, the hour where all atonement is made. I guess the question is, yeah. is that, you know, that's true, but going back even a little further, we're talking about the life of Christ. Okay. That he actually had to live a perfect life for us. That he, he had right, he had to merit salvation for yes. us. So he had to obey the law perfectly yes. in our stead. Uh, absolutely. And uh, this is why it's such a pivotal, dramatic moment when after his baptism, he goes out to face the devil in the desert. The devil knows exactly what's at stake. If he can get Jesus in his weakened, emaciated state to sin, it's all over. And this is, um, you know, again, when we talk about sort of the, the foreshadowing of the Old Testament, we've got Adam who is tempted by the devil and blows it all up. And now we've got the new Adam who has come and he is facing the devil with that same everything on the line. And Christ does not fail. He does not sin. He is always doing his father's bidding he's always doing exactly what the law demands amen yeah in the complete opposite scenario as well right jesus was in the desert after while fasting in a weakened state adam in paradise mm -hmm. in a perfect state uh, comfortable and fails yes but jesus is victorious and actually we don't really want to separate totally um this active and passive obedience and make a make a, a 
a vast a vast distinction there. It's kind of all one package. Sure. Yes. Right. Yeah. It's it's again all of what uh, a part of the life and work of Christ and all that, as you say, all that it encompasses and all that the, the ramifications of that. Yeah. So, what is the history of this law gospel distinction? Is it only found in confessional churches? Uh, why is it not found in other non-confessional churches and so on? Yeah, this is this is interesting. Real quick, is that in our circles, there's even a split with on with among Reformed people as well, where some people say, "Well, there really is no law gospel distinction," which I'd argue they are, aren't really Reformed, right? Mm-hmm. And they would say. Well, this is a, more of a Lutheran thing. Sure. You're a Lutheran pastor and a, a pastor, of course. Sure. So, was this invented by Luther, or did Luther, or was Luther just a great exegete? Let's just put it that way. Uh, was not invented by Luther, and he was an exceptional exegete. But what what um, when we start talking about the time of the Reformation, one of the things we have to be abundantly clear about is almost no one read the Bible. And Luther had had uh, been a priest without actually having read it. He had not read the New Testament. He um, uh, was unacquainted with the gospel, truly. He knew the righteous judge, and he was tormented by his sin, uh, even to the point where uh, those around him were so tired of his, of his angst uh, that they sent him to go and get a PhD just to get him out of the way. And when he did, he read scripture. <laughs> But, you know, uh, so few had actually read it that very, you know, almost nobody was acquainted with what the actual content of, of Scripture was. And so when Luther goes back and he begins to read Scripture for the first time, he finds out that the church's doctrine and practice uh, do not match the clear testimony of Scripture. And this is kind of where his movement towards uh, reforming begins. You go back to Luther and the selling of indulgences mm-hmm. in regard to this. Yeah, yeah. This is this is kind of where Luther begins to uh, again find a, a merciful God in Scripture uh, when the selling of indulgences happens, and he begins to realize some of the rank perversion in the church. Um, he, of course, uh, writes the the now famous uh, ninety five theses. In those theses, Luther um, had not worked out all the theology yet. He still had a lot of medieval Roman Catholicism, but one of the things that he uh, uh, asserts is if, if the Pope had the power to clean out purgatory, why would he not do this simply out of his goodwill? You know, why would he charge? Why would there be all of these kind of things? And what Luther finds in the scripture is the God who shows mercy to sinners, the God that he did not know, the God that scripture showed him. Uh, And as we we were speaking of, just as a a simple thing, uh, a few minutes ago when we were talking about the book of Romans, the law and the gospel are clearly on display. It's not, you know, it, uh, again, it's not something that we have read into scripture. It's the clear testimony of scripture. Mm -hmm. So we're... We're exegeting the scripture. We're not eisegeting the scripture when we're doing that. I I believe that to be the case. Yes, yeah. I believe that uh, one of the things the Reformation said is that the text is clear, and that we can trust the simple words on the page. Uh, so much of that was hidden, uh, and and again used uh, in the corruption 
that was going on in in Christianity at the time. Uh, the empty vessel is easy to move, and when the people only know about Scripture, what you tell them, you can tell them anything, because they have no way of checking up. They have no way of accessing that other than the church. Yeah, they can't be Bereans. Yeah, yeah. And so that's uh, a, a, a big uh, aspect of the Reformation is that the Word of God comes front and center, is front and center, excuse me, and not the not the will of man. And you even have debates within the Lutheran Church, Lutheran churches today, um, in regard to the use of the law. Correct? Yes. Um, uh, as we have seen many uh, shifts of uh, piety and lack of morality throughout the history of mankind, uh, and certainly uh, sin rules the day so often. But we have watched uh, the different application of law and gospel. We've watched the confusion and the commingling of it. And in our own uh, church body, in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, there is a battle going on right now. Um, uh, people uh, who think much like old Lutheran pietism, and, and if I may just take a moment and discuss that. Yes, sure. Uh, after Luther dies, there is a, a what they call the Thirty Years' War. And... Uh, it's a. It was meant to crush the Reformation. Luther was gone, and they wanted to finish off uh, uh, this this little insurrection uh, called the Reformation. And seventy percent of all Germans die in this war. The the earth is scorched. The animals are killed. People are starving, and the moral situation uh, in Germany was pretty horrific at that time. Uh, you know, if a if a, a a hobo wandered into town, he might get eaten because people were that hungry. Wow. Yeah, there was cannibalism and there was all manner of things. So the church says, first of all, look at what all this fighting over doctrine has gotten us. Second, we really need to improve the moral standing of, of our society. And we're not going to anymore just tell them you are forgiven. We're not going to emphasize baptism and communion and these means of grace. We are instead going to tell them you need to show us your good behavior before you get a forgiveness pronouncement. So everything that the Reformation had brought in terms of mercy and grace and God's flowing love to his people was given back. And, and this is what they call the period of Lutheran pietism, which was, again, a, a, a re-emphasizing of, of uh, personal behavior and uh, pleasing God and meriting salvation with our own works. And to bring it into our modern age now, um, we have seen such a moral and cultural slide in the last 10 years in this in this country. A lot of things that traditional Christianity has has upheld in, in terms of um, biblical personhood, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, a proper godly understanding of marriage, uh, in terms of the use of sexuality. So many things have changed so dramatically in the last decade that people got afraid. Pastors got afraid, and 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 the analysis of of sin and godlessness is the right one. We see that that right. clearly, you know, our country has made a shift towards uh, things that are against God's clear testimony. But the solution is not more law, not more flogging, not more uh, uh, you know marring of the conscience, but instead a call to repentance and faith. For Scripture is clear that that only uh, good works proceed from the gospel. It seems like that's always the reaction. Yeah. It, you know, some people think that legalism is 
Well, it's better to to err on legalism than it is on antinomianism. Yes. But I would argue that they're both deadly. I would concur. Yeah, we we definitely don't want to fall off on either side of the horse. Uh, Legalism is deadly. It caught you off from Christ. Also, antinomianism uh, caught you off from God's clear will for your life, clear, clear will for what it is that we are supposed to live and to do. So, yeah, uh, we, we, we want to stay on that horse of law and gospel and not to fall off on either side. Right. Yeah. Um, now, I mean, going back to this whole issue, um, when we talk about justification, we often hear, okay, well, here's the gospel, and that's kind of at the center of the gospel message that we are justified by grace through faith alone. Yes. On account of Christ alone. But then when it comes to sanctification, it seems like, Okay, we're back to law again in most evangelical circles. Sure. Why is that the case? Um, I think part of that is a misunderstanding um, about the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Um, I I think uh, we, uh, first of all, we talk about faith actually being a product of the Holy Spirit, not my own will or effort. And so a lot of misapplication uh, when doctrine goes wrong uh, in, in any church body it's a misunderstanding so frequently of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Uh, our faith is the work of the Spirit in us. In First John, it even says that we are not born of human decision, but of the will of God. We also know that Jesus says uh, that nobody comes to the Father unless they are drawn. You know, that's sort of not an intellectual decision or a, a will that, that uh, an intellectual movement or something that we do, but the fact that God has drawn us to him. And also that sanctification, and this I think it's that was a setup for your question, that sanctification is also the work of God in us, mm-hmm. work of the Holy Spirit in us, the fact that we would not think what is right, confess what is right, or do what is right without the Holy Spirit working those good things in us. And so sanctification, rightly understood, is God's work too. And I think this is where so often it goes off the rails. It seems like most evangelicals radically separate the two. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I tend to refer to that as spiritual plagiarism. It's sort of us wanting to take credit for God's work when clearly he did it and we didn't. And uh, we, we know that, uh, you know, from the time we're kids, that taking credit for someone else's work is wrong. And yet in our faith, we seem to want to do that all too often. Going back to... Um it's gospel. Um, the gospel is good news. Yes. But often we hear uh, about the gospel in terms of um, something we do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Versus something that is done. Yes. Uh, and again, that's a, that's a misunderstanding of the application of law and gospel. Um, I've heard that, and, and I know you gentlemen have too, uh, and probably many of the listeners um, here uh, speaking of living the gospel. You know, you, you have to live the gospel. Submit and, to the gospel. Yes, yeah. It, well, and, and submitting to the gospel works a little better, but but that idea of, you know, that I'm going to live the gospel, Christ lived the gospel and gave it to us. And, and that really, again, with this sort of us doing the gospel we receive the gospel. It is a gift given to us. Again, um, we were just talking about not only the Holy Spirit, but the gospel, right? It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Both grace and faith 
come from him. And this uh, living the gospel thing, that I'm doing the gospel, is a misunderstanding of what the gospel actually is. And again, namely, Christ and him crucified, his work given to us. As another friend of ours who has said in the past that only one person has rightly lived correctly. Yes. And, or lived the gospel, and that's Jesus Christ himself. Exactly. Yes. Because he is, God is the gospel. Yes. Yes, there are only two blameless feet in history, and they were under Christ. And uh, he, he, uh, he obeyed. He did his Father's will blamelessly. He died and rose again and declared to us, you now have a God and a Father. Yep. So there is a famous author who actually believes that we can live the gospel as well um, if it believes that there are demands of the gospel. And you often hear this among um, evangelical authors in this way. Mm -hmm. uh, one such author is uh, David Platt in his book, Radical. And um, I was looking through a couple of uh, chapters in this book today, and also uh, there's a study guide that goes along with it. And in the study guide, there's a part that talks about radical, uh, what the gospel demands are, or what the gospel demands. Mm -hmm. And... Um, he talks about, will, oh, he asked the question, will we choose comfort or a cross? Uh-huh. And I would say, no, I choose comfort in the cross. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's uh, we, we are told clearly that, that we are not to be surprised by the fiery trials that come upon us. We know that uh, we have spoken, the cross alone is our theology. Um but yes, that that's a bit of a false dichotomy in the way that it's it's phrased. Uh, but to be sure, there is only comfort in the cross. It says, "Will we choose indecisive minds or undivided hearts?" We usually do choose both. <laughs> According to my nature as sinner, I usually choose those things. Um, and notice, there's a separation between our minds and our hearts. Yeah. Right? Which is another false dichotomy. Yes, it is. Uh, my my whole being, uh, you know, uh, we talk about being simultaneously sinner and saint. And uh, according to my own nature, I am wholly uh, uh, inclined to have divided heart and mind. <laughs> to have a, a spirit that is rebellious against God. In in this book also, he talks about um, a demand of the gospel, for instance, in Luke chapter 9, 57 through 62. Can you read that on it? Sure. Uh, Luke 9, <clears throat> 57. So it says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Yes. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Uh, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first uh, say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Yes, well, first of all, again, when, when we're looking at that and when we talk about the demands of the gospel, first of all, by definition, the demands of the gospel were put upon Christ. So we begin there. The gospel is a thing that God does to us and for us. 
Now, with regards to the text that was just read, what is going on there? Um, these these gentlemen are <laughs> have proclaimed that they would follow him anywhere, and yet Jesus has that uh, because he is God in the flesh. He has that amazing way of looking at them and knowing exactly what their sin and weak spots are. You're talking about divided hearts and minds. Jesus fleshed that out in them very quickly. Um, Christ always has this, uh, when you look throughout the entirety of the New Testament, uh, you know, the woman at the well says, sir, I have no husband. And he says, yes, you have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the gentleman that you live with now is not your husband, is he? Um, they're grumbling inside themselves so often, these Pharisees who are like, who does this guy think he is? And Jesus looks at them and knows exactly what they're saying and thinking and, and fleshes out their sin right in front of them. And that's what's going on here. These are not demands of the gospel because, again, the gospel rightly understood. The demands of the gospel were put upon Christ and he took them to the cross uh, and, and put our sins to death. Um, these are, uh, again, the demands of the law and God recognizing the sinfulness of the individuals in front of him and how their words did not match what they were actually believing in their hearts. Uh, so not gospel-related at all, in fact, but... So when Jesus tells the rich young ruler to sell all his possessions and to follow him, yes, is that the law or the gospel? <laughs> Again, Jesus sees exactly what this man's weak spot is. It's not necessarily that owning something is bad or having things are bad, but he knew that he put his fear, love, and trust in his money and his position. And Jesus knew exactly where to stick the knife, if you will, spiritually. So yes, we would say law. So he was giving him the full force of the law. Yes, yeah, it was blunt force law trauma there. Yes, <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, because he, he did say that he kept the law from his youth. Yeah. So and Jesus um, loved him actually, grieved yes. for him in that moment. So. Yeah, yeah, we 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 see that at the at the Sermon on the Mount so profoundly. You know, you can you can almost see the Pharisees standing up front with their hands on their hips, going, "Go ahead, Jesus, tell them what they need to hear." Right. And, and Jesus says, you know, well, the law of Moses tells you you shall not kill, but I tell you if you're, you know, you have hatred in your heart, you're a murderer. Well, it's, <laughs> the ante just got up the whole bunch, you know, or, or lust, you know. You know, you may not physically commit adultery like the law of Moses tells you, but I tell you that if you are lusting in your heart, you're an adulterer. Now, this is not giving us next-level Christianity. This is kicking the slats out of any hope we had of justifying ourselves because he has just displayed, I know who you are in your head and your heart. And that's, again, the, the, the blunt force law trauma that kills, you know. Wait a second, guys, though. What about repent for the kingdom of God is at hand? Mm -hmm. Law or gospel? Yeah, well, that's that's law for sure, but the gospel follows with it. Right. Um, uh, our repentance is our just recognition of our falling short of the law's demands which again is is the recognition that i deserve death and hell the law has judged me and i deserve that but you have urged me to repent and to believe that you have done enough that i can't out sin the cross that the gospel is bigger than my sin that the mercy of god is is bigger than anything i've done and that's the gospel and, yeah. So let's talk about let's talk about um, assurance right now, sure. and why this is so important in regard to our assurance. Well, that's uh, 
Or I should say there is, and also there's a misunderstanding, right, in regards to this and how that can give us lack of assurance. You can put it that way as well. Yeah, understanding the distinction, how does that aid our assurance? Perfect. Well, uh, that's a fantastic, wonderful question. Um, In so much of Christianity, we see... And this is this is sort of cross denominations. It's not just any any one specific um, specific branch of of Christianity, but it's it's what I often call the theology of unfinished business versus the theology of it is finished, and the commingling of law and gospel, the idea that we somehow contribute to our salvation, uh, the idea that we are, you know, we have some dents to work out, but but we'll be okay when we apply ourselves hard enough. First of all, is antithetical to the gospel. But second, we never find rest in that situation. Our soul never finds rest because one, the law always accuses us. You know, it always is held up in front of us. You know, uh, none of us gets past the first commandment because we have. Uh, golden calves that we put up in God's place all day long. That's the reality of who we are. And so the heart never finds rest or peace. There is no peace of the Lord to be with us because when the business is never finished, we never know when we're going to die or when the Lord is going to return, and we never know if we're ready enough. And the truth is, under the law, we're not. The gospel, on the other hand, the theology of finished business meaning that Christ has done all things necessary for us to be saved. Meaning that, again, when he says it is finished, he didn't just mean his life or the crucifixion, but he meant the purpose for which he came to rescue sinners. That's finished, and it stays finished. The, I don't do the Greek too much with, with folks, but you know uh, uh, the, the, the Greek word used is to telestai, and it's uh, the, the Greek construct means it is finished with an abiding result in the future. This stays finished. And so we know that can't mean his death because he's going to rise again in just a few days. But he's talking about your salvation. And you can know today that you are saved because the finished work of Christ has accomplished that. And your assurance is based on the faithfulness of Christ for you and not on how well you do. And this is where the assurance of the Christian comes from. What about a believer who is struggling with the same sin over and over, a besetting sin? Yes. Would you give them law in counseling, or would you send them to the gospel? Uh, Both are required. You know, as far as if I'm in a pastoral counseling situation, we certainly do. uh, You know, uh, again, the application of law and gospel is a high art. It is a we don't always apply it exactly the same way depending on what's going on i'll give you i'll give you a quick example and then i'll i'll draw that to a an answer to your question mm-hmm. um if i am talking and this this happened early in my ministry i i had a gentleman who who habitually cheated on his wife a member you know and uh, a member of the congregation and um you know just kind of thought of it as a boys will be boys kind of thing, you know. Yeah, you, you know. Yeah, I know. There's a there's a thing about you know adultery and this and that, but you know, boys will be boys. I'm just a guy. I love my wife. I just you know. Well, the, he gets he gets a pretty healthy dose of the law in that instance. You right. know, clearly, he, you know, you are being obnoxious and faithless in the face of God's law. 
on the on the flip side, if you're going to uh, preach at a funeral, the law is abundantly evident. You know, you don't have to uh, you don't have to preach hellfire and brimstone because there's somebody dead in front of you, and so there is a place then, as we are burying our Christian brothers and sisters, where the gospel really predominates in a in a 80, 20, 90, 10 kind of way. Um, the fullness of the law has set upon them. Somebody comes with sins now that are continuous, that they are, uh, you know, it depends on the nature of the contact with the individual, but we point them back to the fact that Christ died for these sins that we continually commit even those. Now, you might think to yourself, well, if somebody is wrestling and struggling with these things, or they keep committing the same sin, at what point does God cease to forgive those kind of things? And the answer is he doesn't. Because you and I, and all of us, are guilty again of being idolaters, of self-promoters, of being self-righteous, of we, we continually commit the same sins each and every day. And Again, none of us has a single boast before God. So I would rightly uh, speak to the person um, who has uh, uh, brought this continual sin about how they stand in light of the law. But I would again proclaim to them God's mercy again and again and again. And even in our repentance, there's no such thing as perfect repentance. No, no. And... uh Sometimes the adverbs are an enemy of the gospel. And here's what I mean. I sincerely repent of them. I am heartily sorry for them. And then we start to play games with that. Well, am I sincere, sincere, or am I just sort of low-grade sincere? And right. am I heartily sorry or heartily, hardly sorry? And this is, a, this is a mess because our, even our repentance is not up to snuff. Right. We often hear, okay, well, remorse and repentance aren't the same thing, right? So yeah. Yeah. You're never sorry enough. Yeah, I think we we go back to the faith of a mustard seed. Even my repentance stinks. Even my my spiritual life is flabby, and that's why no fear, love, and trust, no confidence can be put on my end of it, but only on the perfect, shocking mercy of Jesus Christ for me. Yeah, yeah I was talking to a brother today at lunch, and I was talking about the difference between someone who practices sin and someone who struggles with sin. Those are two different things. Yeah. Yeah, and the and the Bible does condemn those who continually practice sin. Yes, yes, yeah. We we don't in any way want to soft pedal sin. I think that's a really that's sometimes what we're accused of. You know, when we talk about grace and that you know again we talk about that uh, we preach good works, but that you're not saved by them. People think ah soft pedaling sin by no means no, no not at all no. Um, but yeah, even Luther makes a distinction. He says, the birds will fly over your head, but it's good not to give them a nest, you know? <laughs> wow. And it, yeah, yeah, it's, you know, I mean, all of us, we cannot fight the things that, that, that come upon our mind and heart. We are inclined to sin by nature. And as you say, uh, we will wrestle with our flesh all the days of our lives, but it's important that we do, you know? Amen. Yeah. I think that's a great... Um I think it's an evidence of someone who is regenerate that they actually are struggling with sin, that they actually um, are so sorrowful about their sin that it bugs them. 
Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's a really good diagnostic as we talk about living as Christians in this world. Uh, somebody will say, well, if I'm saved by grace, why should I do anything? That's not a question that faith asks. We, we as Christians uh, can never ask, how much can I get away with? But instead, what would God have me do? You know, and and that is a, a little bit of a diagnostic, you know, when we say, um, you know, I don't have any desire to do good works at all, then our faith is not where it needs to be. Yeah. Yeah. So you, Matthew 7 is always brought up, correct, about how some come to the Lord and they say, um, you know, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and so on. And yet, uh, you know, the Lord casts them out and, um, and you have the opposite end where uh, Jesus said, when I was hungry, you fed me, and so on. Mm-hmm. And when I was thirsty, you gave me water. Yeah. And then the righteous ones, it says there, asked the Lord, when did we give you water? When did we feed you? Because you know they don't see themselves as righteous. They're not concerned with showing the Lord of their piety. You know, they're, they're the ones that are living in faith, knowing that it is not of them. It's completely of, of the Lord. Yeah, um, yeah. When we talk about all things not done, you know, in faith are sin, and and Scripture also tells us that you know even our our righteous works are like filthy rags. But we know that even the things that we do that are civilly righteous, if they're not done in faith, are sin. And as you say, the, this this uh, wonderful example, and someone else had brought that up to me this week. That, that 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 very same text that you were speaking of and it is it is that picture of feed my lambs tend my sheep of of what you do to these others that you do in faith as you serve them in faith and love them in faith this is, you're doing that to me we also see the converse of that when he's talking to paul at his conversion he's just why do you persecute me you know, Paul's persecuting God's children, but Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? And it is that that image of serving of love and faith, and as you say, doing God's will in that in that way. Yeah, because they're, they're found in Christ, right? That's the union with Christ. So it's, if it's done to his sheep, it's done to Christ as, as well. Absolutely, yeah. All right, so... The law of gospel distinction. Yes. We talked about its historicity, its uh, biblical warrant, its effects on our insurance, our, on our assurance. And, uh, I mean, it's certainly going to help with the hard passages in Scripture. Because Scripture does talk about those who are righteous, like Lot, mm-hmm. right? Like Simeon. And, yes. um, and like uh, Zechariah. So... Um, how do we how do we answer those texts? So how can they be righteous when Paul uh, clearly says that no one is righteous in Romans three? Outstanding, yeah, uh, great question. Uh, for, no one is righteous, not even one, and and of our own accord under the law, none of us are. So that that's first of all uh, an established fact. Yet, as we look back to um, the Old Testament and then to Saint Paul, um, Abraham had faith. And it was credited to him as righteousness. We recognize Abraham did not have an abundance of good works and it was credited to him as righteousness. Or he was better than his neighbors anyway and it was credited to him as righteousness. But instead, it was his faith in God's testimony and the things that God had told him 
that made him righteous. You and I, by our own works, will never be righteous. But we are, as saints, declared righteous on account of Christ. And um, there was an old an old story uh, that talked about that, um, about a, a pair of brothers. They were twins, and one of them was a very uh, upstanding man, and the other one was kind of a creep, you know, by, by moral standards. And uh, the creepy one was uh, playing a card game one day and was cheated and stabbed the guy to death in front of witnesses. He had blood all over him and, and was quite a mess. Uh, he went home, he threw his bloody clothes in the closet, and he went away to hide. Um, the upright brother uh, knew that the police would come soon and he put the bloody clothes on and took his brother's place when the police showed up he said I was the one who did it he was sentenced and put to death the guilty brother comes after a period and throws himself on the mercy of the court and says of course I I was the one who did it and the judge said the the crime has been paid for you're free to go and that that's this this is a picture of christianity christ is the devout upright one who has put on our bloody clothes he has taken our place uh, he has died and risen again and our sins are paid for and we're free amen the yeah. gospel never gets old no amen. no because i need it so badly so completely and so desperately yes yeah, daily. We need to be reminded of it daily because we're naturally bent toward a, a works or a meritorious type of uh, reconciliation, and that's that's how we're wired. Yeah, we incline to moralism by nature, as Dad Rod said, and and we do usually for our neighbor, of course, but <laughs> right. but yes, to to merit our own salvation. And I think again, in that clear definition of the gospel is rescue. The gospel does not come natural to us. Yeah, no, no. And even when we know, even when the Spirit has put that in us, we fight against it with everything we have. You know, the not, war, yeah. The war is real. Yes, yeah. The struggle is real, no doubt about it. So uh, we talked earlier in about uh, working out uh, Philippians two. We work out um, our salvation with fear and trembling, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. What is what is that talking about? I mean, <laughs> how are we supposed to? Uh, we work for our salvation? What is it saying there? Yeah. In several places in Scripture, we talk about um, who does and doesn't inherit the kingdom of heaven. And you'll see a laundry list of sins, quarreling, lust, hatred. You know, out of the heart comes these things, you know, idolatry, lust, hatred, murder. And in several places, we see these, these laundry list of sins, and we recognize when we hear them, that's me. I do that. I'm quarrelsome. I'm divisive. I like a good fight. You know, I, I, I love to break the eighth commandment. Don't you find that's really easy to do? You know, when we talk about, about, uh, you know, not, um, you know, uh, not only not bearing false witness, but we're really bad at putting the best spin on people. You know, we, we, we have this laundry list. And when you recognize that that's you, that's a little prick to the heart. That's mm-hmm. a little conscience because when you realize that these people do not inherit the kingdom of heaven and I'm one of those, where are you at? You know, the old, the old Houston, we have a problem, right? Right. And, and so, uh, again, um, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? 
Luther writes in that first thesis we were talking about, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ says repent, he meant that all of our lives should be one of repentance. And it should because we daily sin much. And we must take our sin seriously. And yes, when we stand in front of the law and realize that we are judged and that we have no hope, certainly that is a heart-pricking, conscious-bleeding kind of thing, and it's appropriate. Um, I don't know if you saw the, the Luther film that came out a few years back. You know, It's probably been a decade now, I guess. Time passes. But it, when the film begins, Luther is in front of the altar, and he is face down as much as he physically can be. His nose is pressed against these completely um, uh, laid out before the Lord. And, of course, physically we don't have to do that, but spiritually that's the right, the right approach, that we would come before God saying, I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what I have done and by what I have left undone. I have not loved you with my whole heart. I have not loved my neighbor as myself. And, and there is an element of fear and trembling before the law with that. But yet... The gospel prevails, and it's a different fear than when we were in an unregenerate state. It's it's a yes. it's it's a reverence. It's not a fear that he's going to send us to hell. Yeah, yeah, and 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 very much in that reverence that this is not a god to be trifled with. You know, he is. You know, uh, the old C.S. Lewis thing. Is he a tame lion? No, he's not a tame lion, but he's good. You know, and, and that really is a. Yes, we, we, we know that even as we acknowledge our sin in light of the law, we know that we have a merciful God who's waiting to absolve us of that guilt. And uh, so, yeah, it's, um, you know, understanding ourselves in the light of the law is really a, a humbling and, 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 you know, potentially terrifying thing. When you're in the real presence of God, if he's not there to forgive you, he's terrifying. <laughs> but he is. He is there to forgive you. He's right. come for that. Amen. Amen. Yeah. So with the hard passages then, uh, with the hard passages then, we should always go to the clear passages first. Yeah, absolutely. In order to interpret the hard passages with clarity. Can't emphasize that enough. Yeah, it, it really is important. Um, scripture interprets scripture. It's something that we've we've held fast to for a long time. And and yes, when you have a, a, a passage that is difficult, the clear the the ones that are somewhat simpler will will add illumination to that. Yes. That's not often done correctly in the church today. No. No. And, and Again, you know, when when you know, you know we we declare that 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 the uh, the proper distinction of law and gospel is the highest art of a Christian. It's something we never perfect. It's something that's always ongoing. You know, because it applies to you know every aspect of our lives and these many different things that come up. And sometimes, let's be honest, Scripture sometimes gets interpreted by our moods. Mm -hmm. or our agendas or what we think is more important to emphasize at the time. And sometimes we're not always right, but the text is clear. Yeah. Amen. So before we get out of here today, why don't you tell us a little bit about your ministry? Uh, it's a wonderful, uh, wonderful opportunity that I've had. I, I served in, in Iowa for 11 years and, and that was a, a wonderful run. Uh, Southern California, of course, is a, 
is uh, in some respects extremely different, and yet other other times uh, the problem is exactly the same. You know, we we are sinners in need of grace, in need of a savior. And so um, when I came, uh, yeah, the the the, the congregation had uh, had a previous pastor for uh, I think nearly forty seven years, and and uh, so uh, you know there there was a big transition for a while going through you know a big change uh, between pastors, but. Um, we are actively reaching out uh, to the the folks around us. We have a very large Orthodox Jewish community around us, right, right. which uh, yep. presents a unique situation for us to deal with. Uh, but also, there's a a massive uh, homeless population in Los Angeles, even in Beverly Hills. Most oh, people yeah. think that would not be the case, but sure. it it is. And and so, uh, we have a lot of blue collar, a lot of transient, a lot of uh, you know uh, people who are very down on their luck. And and there's a uh, there's a wide range of people to uh, to serve there. Um, you know, we, we're told to baptize all nations, and we found that all nations have come to us. So, <laughs> our congregation is very is varied. We have uh, people from Madagascar and France and Russia and all manner of things. So it's it's a uh, got my work cut out, but it's wonderful. And do you teach a catechism on any other days besides Sunday, or? Yeah, uh, yeah, we have Wednesday Wednesday classes, and uh, we have uh, apologetics on Sundays after church, and a uh, number of things. So, uh, just really kind of getting everybody. A, a lot of my congregation is very far away, and you know, traffic sometimes makes it difficult for people to get there. But we're still uh, sorting those problems on when to put classes and all that. But it's uh, we are growing slowly, and and it's been a lot of things are going well. So, and you have a. A podcast that I listen to all the time. Ah, yes, um, uh, we are. Uh, I'm a part of uh, uh, You Are Forgiven Radio, and uh, it's a it's a meant to uh, to propagate sermons that that uh, hopefully rightly discern law and gospel, and uh, that it would uh, not only reach the people in L.A. but also people all over the world through the podcast and the internet. And it's it's done an amazing job of that. So, and it's a ministry of fifteen seventeen, right? Yes, uh, uh, an organization that I'm uh, very proud to be a part of, uh, uh, dedicated to Reformation legacy, and of course, you know, sort of uh, predicated on the work of Dr. Rosenblatt. But he would he would say, "That's nah, the Reformation. It's not me," you know. Right. And uh, and and so yeah, just uh, sort of furthering that. Uh, uh, that that gospel proclamation that is so uh, front and center of everything that we do. Great. Yes. Yeah, it's such a pleasure to have you here, man. Really good to be here. Thank you. It's been wonderful to have you. Thank you. But thanks. So to take us out, why don't you give us the law and why don't you give us the gospel? It is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God so that no one can boast. We've sinned against God in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and left undone. But we are saved by the perfect obedience, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And his bloodshed has paid for our every sin. And rejoice. The forgiveness of sins brings eternal life. Only in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. And you've been listening to another episode of the Back to the Reformation podcast. Until next time. See ya!